Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors, to another Suncast episode. Thank you for lending us the only resource that is not renewable, and that is your time. I promise to take good care of it. And if you're new here, you're going to get a ton of value out of this episode. So thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's clean energy leader is a friend and solar advocate that has been at it for quite a while, uh, really leading the charge in many ways around the one thing that most of us have little control over, though we will find today that we actually have a lot of uh, input into, and that is policy and by way of policy, advocacy. Megan Nutting has served as Sanova's Executive Vice President for Government and Regulatory Affairs for uh, the better part of the last year, but she's been at Sanova and at uh, policy and advocacy for the solar industry for quite a while longer. We'll dig into her background and how she has championed solar policy that really is making a difference across the country in this episode. I promise you will want to stick around if you've ever thought uh, you'd like to know more about how all of this works. If you would like to hear more conversations like this one, well, you should subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already uh, in Spotify or Apple to make it super easy or whatever podcast player you are listening to. If you just hit that subscribe button, hit the little notification bell so you will know when one of our twice weekly episodes just like this come out where we interview thought leaders and executives around the clean energy sector about how and why they're dedicating their careers to the energy transition. For now, Get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. We're going to dive into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, I've mentioned that she indeed is the banner bearer in many ways, and I'm really honored to finally have a chance to have someone who's been on Suncast programs before, but never herself interviewed in a podcast episode with us, Miss Megan Nutting. Welcome to Suncast. Thank you. It's good to it's good to finally be here. I'm a long time long time listener, long time fan. I love it. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, you guys, uh, it always makes me blush and smile at the same time when I get on with the guest and they say something like you said when we first did our pre-interview, which is, oh, I listened to some version of this. I listened to your episode with my husband while we're walking the dog in your case. You know, I'm really honored by that and humbled by it. Uh, there's a lot that folks could be doing with their time. And so when I find that I have a chance to interview someone like you, uh, who I consider to be a luminary, as you know, by listening, part of why I want to do this is that folks may think that this Megan Nutting is insert random thought they have about <laughs> who you are and what you represent uh, for good or bad. And, uh, you know, it's partly just to humanize the process for folks to see that we all get up from a, a restless night of sleep. We all yeah. put our pants on one leg at a time. We all have dogs to walk uh, unless you have a hamster to feed or whatever. But I'm really grateful for a chance to dive into a topic that I think a lot of folks similarly look at with cross eyes and they don't really know how to talk about it. Were you coming up always 
interested in advocating for and sort of understanding the rules of play? I was. Well, I was, I've always been interested in environmental issues specifically. When I was applying to college, I also applied to live in a dorm called Eco House or Ecology House. That was mm. one of the themed dorms on Cornell's campus. So it was me and, and all of the other hippie kids um, <laughs> living in this dorm. There was lots of composting and, and, and classes on veganism and drum circles. It was, it was amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> it was great. We also started a group, you know, this was back in, you know, 99, 2000, that was called Kyoto Now! Exclamation point. That, that part's mm. important. Wow. And we, what we tried to do is get the university to adhere to the standards of the Kyoto Protocol, which was obviously the yeah. Paris Agreement of the 90s. And it just seemed like such a heavy lift. I mean, we met with every, there are nine schools at Cornell. We met with the, the deans of every single one of them. Wow. Um, we protested, we did a sit-in, we did everything we could. And it just, it just seemed impossible to try to get the university basically to, to commit to reducing its carbon emissions. And now I see yeah. universities across the country divesting from fossil fuels and being committed to lowering their carbon emissions. I mean, it's, it's incredible how far we've come in the last 20 years. So, so yes, I've always, I've always cared about environmental issues and, and, and wanted to pursue those through advocacy. If I go a little further back, did you grow up kind of coastal environment or flyover country? What part of how you grew up influenced sort of the way you thought about the coming of age and the choice of career? Yeah, I, um, I grew up in Maine. And then when I was 15, I moved to the mountains of Colorado. So always places where there were really the only thing to do was be outdoors. <laughs> I spent <laughs> I spent a lot of time skiing downhill and cross country and yeah. and hiking just cuz that's that's what there was to do. Um so that yeah. that probably influenced it a lot. I noticed that you got your degree in biology at Cornell. Uh don't see a whole lot of biology majors in policy and advocacy. Well, maybe advocacy but not policy work for sure. Uh what career path did you not go down, but always thought you would? <laughs> yeah, my, my specific degree was in environmental biology because that was the, okay. the part I cared about the most, but the, the title mm. of it is just, you know, biology. I actually entered college as a theater major. <laughs> no way. How about that? Yeah, really, really random. I loved um, musical theater mm -hmm. and regular theater. And so, but then I decided that... Uh, I did. I mean, I was 18, so I, I thought there was not a ton of future for me in that. And so I decided to study biology, which was another subject I really loved. And then I did theater sort of on the side, sort of as an extracurricular. Uh, random fact, I've been in three murder mystery plays. No way. And plays? Plays, awesome. yeah. Three. And were you, were you a perpetrator? Every time. I was the killer. <laughs> Every time. I, I think... I think you're just validating some some folks' uh, thoughts about you. I know, maybe, maybe I am. I know. I I I think it's just because you have a certain <laughs> you have a certain reputation for being uh, doggedly <laughs> adherent to your your purpose. I'll say that. I don't, may, perhaps I I like to think of it yeah. as because often the killer has to play sort of two roles. There's the role you play in the play, and then Ooh. once you're unmasked, you you have like a different accent, or you're someone else. Oh my goodness! So I'm just so versatile that I could play two characters. But there's probably but, other explanations. That, are that is so fascinating. So were you led more to the play, uh, like the theater side, um, or was there ever more of like a musical theater piece to it? There was, yeah. I did I did musical theater too. No I loved way. both. Probably probably musical theater more. 
Any favorite musical musicals? Um, I played Mame in Mame at one no point. Way. Yeah, that was How about that. It was a. It was. I was tired by the end of that of the show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I like that one a lot. That's fun. My my children are in musical theater now at uh, six and eight, Ugh, and there's nothing better. In Matilda. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of fun. That's great. <laughs> and I think that it's such a character builder to put yourself out at that young of an age or at any age, frankly. My friend, Matt Harris, who I know you're probably familiar with, he's in Denver and at, been at SEI for years and years and years. He's in, uh, shout out to Matt, Matthew, big, he always listens to Suncast. So he's really into uh, improv. Mm, yep. And we often talk, he and I, about the role that improv and musical theater can play especially early in a person's life in building confidence yep. and in helping with communication skills. Do you feel like your musical theater helped you on the stage of life now? Definitely. Definitely. And mm-hmm. I did, I did speech and debate in high school as well. And Why loved, am I not <laughs> loved debating, but yeah. And I sort of, I sort of regret eschewing theater early on um, thinking that it wasn't applicable to anything. It turns out it is. It teaches you how to, like you said, the confidence, how to communicate, how to, engage with people. Think about it. If you're up giving legislative testimony, is someone going to listen better to someone just reading something with, you know, in monotone or someone who can actually be engaging and, and share that information? Who can lift her eyebrows as she's speaking. <laughs> I love it. Right, right. So, so it's, For it's, anyone watching on YouTube, <laughs> Megan is illustrating what it would look like. I love it. You do it so naturally now too. I mean, the same as, same as yeah. I do. It's, uh, I was in musical theater all my life and show choir in college. A little known fact. Uh, I was in the same show choir as Darius Rucker, which is also a little known fact. How about that? That's amazing. He actually went to the University of South Carolina, if folks can believe that, the other USC. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think um, before we move forward into some of the ways that that these speaking and presentation habits have, have helped you, I'd like to just take one more look back. And that is particularly around your family uh, your family structure. Are you from a, a small close-knit family, a huge, large close-knit family? How would you describe both the nature of sort of the, the way you're brought up by your parents and the kinds of conversations that that represent the early sparks of interest for you in, in your careers? Yeah, I'm from a, a pretty small sort of nuclear family. I have a sister, mm, um, yeah. but I have a ton of cousins, like 20, yeah. probably 20 cousins. Um, wow. there's, so the, it's a big extended family. And so a lot of them to me are like two, you know, two specifically are like brothers. So I, I was lucky to, to grow up with a, with a large family and everyone is from Maine and lived in Maine when I was growing up. So it was, we were all geographically pretty close. So I get to see them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. You know, one of the things I half expected to hear in the, what career you didn't go to, you didn't pursue, but always maybe thought you would was politician you know, Jan did a great service early in, uh, you know, a few years ago, 2018, when you were running for office in Denver, mm-hmm. hotly contested district in the fastest growing city in the United States. What about running for office at that moment in your career where your career was flourishing? I mean, like really the hardest, mm-hmm. <laughs> the hardest working, I'm, I know uh, at the time, like there's so much on the line. What about being uh, a public figure called your attention. And I also am curious, so why did you do it? And then also, how did it affect your outlook on the day-to-day work you do in policy? Yeah. I, it never occurred to me to be a politician. I, I, I never thought of that as an option. 
um, when I was younger. It was only when I started working more in politics, doing more lobbying, that I realized that the people at the at the local level are making a ton of decisions that affect us on a daily basis. And it's it's just it's so critical that we have good people representing us. And not all of them are perfectly competent or <laughs> necessarily have the public's best interests at heart. They might have, the, you know, sort of their own agenda. And so after working, I mean, I think I've worked in more than 20 or 25 states at some point. So after after seeing that, I, I decided, well, you know, we need good people. I think I can be that person. I'll be committed, you know, to my constituents and my district and to, you know, to a, a set of principles that I find, um, you know, fairly universal and, fa- and important so it was, it was mostly, I thought, you know, I, I can do this better and we need people who can do it better. Do you feel it informed or maybe even like restructure or in any way modified the way that you thought about your policy work? Um, that's the thing. There's, I think people don't often recognize there's a, a difference between politics and policy. I love policy. I love it. I love giving feedback on legislation and regulations. I love the advocacy side of it and improving you know, what, what laws and regulations are passed, um, thinking through what's best, what works best for everybody. The politics side is definitely trickier. It's, it's, it's a, it's a fight and it's, um, to put yourself out there to run for office is a referendum on you. I mean, it's not an issue people are voting on. They, it is, it is you, they are voting on. Um, and then they also feel that they have the right to comment on everything you're doing or criticize everything you're doing. And so it, it gets very personal, it gets emotional. People are offensive and rude. So the the politics side, I think, is is a lot tougher for me than than the policy side, which I really love. I think it's really interesting that as a an environmental biology major, with of course, as we mentioned, the the theater history and background, you ultimately launched your career in communications, notably as deputy press secretary for Senator Snow, and then a legislative and communications director for assembly member Linda Rosenthal in New York. Why did that become the outlet for you coming out of college? When I first got out of college, I moved to DC because I wanted to be in a place that could influence what was going on. And DC, you know, to to my 22-year-old self, DC seemed like the the perfect and only place to do that. Um, so I ended up working for a couple of nonprofits, but it's hard when you're in DC not to not to be fascinated by, you know, the big white domed building on the hill um, and to want to wanna, wanna try to work there. And so I ended up getting a job repre- um, with a representative from my home state, Olympia Snow. It meant a lot to me, first of all, to work for Maine because I, you know, that that is where I am from, where my family is from, where our history is from. Um, and it also meant a lot to me to work for a woman because that this was back in 2004. There weren't you know, there still aren't enough women in pol- political leadership positions in the country, but 20 years ago, it was, it was even worse. And so it meant a lot to me to, to be, you know, to be, to be there and, and see her leadership firsthand. On that note, is it just me or does it seem like there are more female comms and even policy directors in our you know, solar industry than men? That's a good point. Yeah. It is seeming like that increasingly. I think for a long time, I started in this industry in 2009. For a long time, it, it wasn't, but we're definitely moving in that direction. Yeah. So I want to get to 2009, but really quickly, I didn't ever ask you, you spent a really interesting random three months in London uh, 
What was that about? Yeah, it was it was during it was between the two years of my two years of grad school. So we were mm, able okay. to just go, you know, go do it essentially an internship or or go work wherever we wanted, and the university would pay for it. So who wouldn't turn down, you know, a, a grad student from from Princeton that was that was free? And I ended up working for what was then the British version of the EPA, and this was at the end of Bush's terms. And so the reason I was interested in what Britain was doing, I wanted to know how they were addressing carbon and approaching carbon and climate change, because I felt like we in the U.S. weren't doing enough. So I wanted to get a sense of what another country similar to ours was doing and how we could apply some of the lessons learned there to here when hopefully there was an improvement in the administration that that sort of cared more about (laughs) about climate change related issues. So I'm going to bundle a couple of things in here. So you come back home, you finish grad school, you drop out of, uh, or you like pop out of grad school, you know, freshly minted uh, graduate student, and it's the global financial crisis. You're hoping to get a job, I presume in policy. How and when did it become apparent to you or clear that you wanted to really put what you'd learned in London, what you had learned on, on Capitol Hill to work within the solar industry specifically? Yeah, it was tough. I don't recommend graduating during a global financial crisis <laughs> when, when nobody is hiring. It was definitely tough. It was tough timing. Um, and I ended up working for another female legislator, a state assembly member from who represents the Upper West Side in New York, and eventually realized that New York is not the place for me to live. Um, and I went, I went back to D.C. and did some consulting for the World Bank for a little while. And while I was there you know, was applying for jobs. I actually, I had, I had gotten a job and I sort of regret not taking this job at Environmental Working Group when I graduated. And I'm just, I'm a huge fan of their work to this day. I think they are one of the best environmental groups out there. But I ended up moving to New York because of my boyfriend at the time and I wanted to be closer to him. So anyway, so when that all didn't work out, I moved to DC um, where I felt was- Wait, the boyfriend with or the job? Everything, just, yeah. I could, okay, I, everything. Got it. Well, New York was not- <laughs> Not, not great for me. Um, but I ended up going back to DC, which was a place I knew and loved, and ended up getting this interview with a company I hadn't heard of, no one had ever heard of. It was totally obscure. This company called Solar This is 2009, this is by the way. 2009, yeah. With this company called Solar City. Rogue Californian startups. Right, right. Yeah. And we were, um, there was one person from Solar City there, Colin Murchie, who's now at EVGO who actually yeah. did improv and also went to Cornell. No way. And he he was working out of You've got some you've got some homies at EVGo. That's another I do, story I do. I love EVGo and ChargePoint. I love both I love I love yeah, all Charge chargers. Well, oh, we got to be got to be politically correct here. There. <laughs> They're all great. So you got this interview yeah. at this unknown this relatively unknown startup yeah. Solar City. Yeah, totally unknown. And I think Colin was working out of the SpaceX offices just because that it was sort of a sister company in DC. In DC. Yeah, it was it was office space he could use. And they ended up hiring me. And I thought, you know, should I do this? It's you know, it's environment, it's environmental, which I care about, and it's 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 you know, supporting solar, which which I yeah. think is important, but who knows if solar is gonna be a thing. And, you know, if this is gonna, if this industry, like, I just don't know what's gonna happen with this industry. And then I thought, you know, I'm, I'm young. This is a, you know, this is a risk I wanna take because it's something I care about and really yeah. believe in. You know, so maybe no one's ever heard of this company and, and maybe this won't work out, but at least, at least I'll be working in a, in a field that I care about and love um, and that aligns with my values. 
And then it did end up working out. I love it. What were some of the things early? So this is probably a year or so, I guess, after the time in London. Is there anything that stands out for you that you immediately put to work at that Solar City opportunity that you had at least had the germ of an idea from that time at DEFRA? A lot of what I did at DEFRA was it was community engagement and sort of coalition building. There were there were a lot of projects related to that. They were Jeffra was at the time funding something like eighty projects within the UK um, related to that, and so that quickly became you know something I employed immediately, and and also something I I love to this day. I love I love you know building up coalitions and working with others and and you know making a strong case with a lot of people who may not agree on every single thing. So we started doing that, you know, to the extent we could, because once again, it was a fairly nascent industry. So working with other companies where we could, working with trade associations, we actually moved from SpaceX and then worked out, we rented some space in SIA's office. Um, So we worked out of SIA's offices. So it was nice to be co-located with them as well. Well, it's perhaps coincidence, but these are how the stars align that you'd bring an organization like SIA into the conversation. I have noticed when sort of looking over the arc of your career, the duality of you know very ambitious growth oriented roles and and uh, and ascension I'd say inside of companies like Solar City Solar City and Sonova, while at the same time really thinking about and being intentional about public I'll call it public service but service to boards in particular back to your nonprofit Washington D.C. roots as sort of an extracurricular activity. Can you talk about the the drive to give of that extra time towards these uh, not more nonprofit advocacy related efforts. And tell me a little bit about some of the early endeavors likewise that you leaned into. Yeah. Solar is incredible and solves so many, so many of our hugest problems. It doesn't solve all of them. And that's, that's partly why I ran for office is I was interested in working on some other issues, you know, in addition to renewable energy, there were some other, there are a number of other things I care about and wanted to work on. And so the way I've been able to do that throughout my career is through board engagement and and nonprofit organizations and through the great work that they do. And so I've been, I've been really fortunate to be part of some, part of some great ones and and part of founding some, what I think are great ones, um, including Women in Solar Energy, which I think we founded in 2011, maybe 2012. Well, if LinkedIn is accurate, it's 2012. Okay, 2012. Yeah, LinkedIn knows what it's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So yeah, so um, uh, another woman in the solar industry and I, I had we had we had met at some at some different events um, and realized that we both had a passion for supporting women in the industry. And, and a decade ago, it was, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. we we were something like 14 percent of the industry, or you know, 15 percent. We were definitely the minority, um, and we mm-hmm. we found at trade shows that there were occasionally uh, women in that were part of sort of booth setups that were called booth babes. You know, they were there yeah. basically to attract people in, to, to speak to the, to the men who actually knew what they were talking about, <laughs> um, which was, which was offensive. Um, and, yeah. it, and it was hard to be. It catered to, it catered to a whole different environment or sort of philosophy around what our industry was represented by and who it was represented by. Exactly. And so we wrote an open letter on this issue I remember this. Oh, I totally remember this. 
Green Tech Media gave you guys a lot of loft on that, I think didn't they? they did. Yeah. I mean, I love uh, Green Tech Media. You know, rest in peace. I I love them. Um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, so we we wrote this open letter and, and asked trade shows to be more cognizant of sort of the culture that they were promulgating um, and, and ended up getting some changes made. There were you know, at sort of the highest levels, they, you know, the criticism, they didn't love the criticism or the, you know, the, the, the coverage. Um, so we ended up getting some changes made. And then from there, founded WISE, Women in Solar Energy. And, and the whole goal was to use WISE as an opportunity for women to have a network because, at the, you know, once again, there were so, there were so few of us. So to have a to have a group that they could network with and to try to promote them, to try to, we talked about trying to get women to speak on more panels, um, for example, to sort of make sure that, the, you know. No more mantles. No more mantles. Everyone, like, we, for everyone who thinks yeah, it's a new it idea. Is, it is, <laughs> yeah. We, it's, so we created binders full of women because. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because As I recall, it was, bi- it was binders of badass they women. They were badass women. Yeah, they were. Um, yeah. And, and, and still techni- are. That was the technical exactly. term for the binder. Exactly. And so. <laughs> We put because because we talked to to conference organizers and they were like, well, you know, we mm-hmm. would put more women on panels, but there's just none with this expertise yeah. or we don't know any. And we were like, oh, we can fix that for you. So it was it was partly giving women a, a space to network and partly promoting, giving them a chance to promote yeah. themselves and and have a voice in the industry. And our wise came around around the same time as Rise. We've had Kristen on the show, and and as I recall, as you wound down wise, you basically leaned in and gave support for rise. Is that right? Right. Yeah. We started wise when there was only a wowie, (laughs) when it was (laughs) women of wind energy. And so, um, Mm -hmm. Kristen, another random fact also went to Cornell with me. (laughs) No way. How fun. Yes. What a, what a tribe you guys have. You, Steph, Kristen. No, yeah. Um, And uh, Ann Hoskins also went to Cornell. And, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Wow. Um, And my same grad school at Princeton. So we have, we have. Wait, 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 hang on, hang on. (laughs) So the two most powerful women in policy for, on the private side of the industry went to the same grad school? We did. Yeah. And same undergrad. Cornell is, what a legacy. Yeah. Same undergrad and grad school. Oh, Cornell and Princeton. Cornell and Princeton. But then Anne went on to get her law degree at Harvard. So she she's ahead of me there. Yeah. And of course, for those who maybe don't know, is the head of policy for Sunrun, uh, Sonova's biggest competitor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, wow, that's really fascinating. The, all of the serendipitous connections uh, yeah. that we're able to make. And, you know, it also speaks to the intentionality behind not just yours, but so many women's efforts in our industry yeah. to give a platform and a voice for women, but by extension, minorities in our industry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, so Christy um, at Rise is, is fantastic. And I've, I've been a huge admirer of her work from the very beginning. And so. Also Princeton grad. I'm kidding. No, she did. <laughs> she did not. <laughs> um, but uh, so when she talked about wanting to expand Wowie's work, I was thrilled because she had the infrastructure and the funding and the board, whereas we at Wise were all volunteers and we're, you know, we're trying to do that in our, in our spare time and we're all really busy. So a lot of us at Wise, through our, through our support behind Christy's efforts with Rise, and I'm just so thrilled with what she's done with the organization and how she serves the women um, in the renewable industry and her, her focus on diversity an inclusion and, and she's just, she's a fantastic leader. So I'm so glad she took up the mantle and, and joined the solar. I'm glad the solar industry has access to her as well because it used to just be wind. hundred percent. Yeah. And she's doing a great job. Well, 
for about the last year, you've been a board member and executive committee member for the Solar Energy Industries Association. Uh, again, I have to ask, what compelled you uh, into the kind of self-flagellation of being a full-time <laughs> policy director and uh, jump on the board of an organization that is very demanding of time like SIA? It is demanding, but it's so critical. SIA does such fantastic work and is is the voice of our industry in, you know, in in so many ways and in so many forums. Part of my impetus for for wanting to make sure that I'm engaged is, you know, there there are a number of different interests represented by SIA, um, namely utility scale interests and, and and residential. And as a as a residential solar policy person, um, it's really important to me that that the work we do is is represented and and worked on by SIA, and and they do a great job. But it never hurts to you know to push it a little extra here and there. <laughs> Is there anything in particular that in your work with SIA you find is under-resourced and that as a community, you would like to take this opportunity just to, to have folks champion around? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to have resources for everything, obviously. I, I guess I'll start with one thing I think is well-resourced and SIA is doing great is um, the trade issues have been, have been really tough over the past couple of years. Um, and those affect both residential and utility scale. And I think SIA has been incredible in leading our industry on that front. One thing, I've, and I've talked about this internally at SIA and, and, and other places, one issue I, I, that's near and dear to my heart and that I, I would like the industry to, to focus on more is um, interconnection, the interconnection of systems. Is this like VPPs? Uh, no, just interconnecting residential solar systems. Just Okay. Yeah. Just right. Getting interconnected at the AHA level, like the struggle at of- the utility level, just working with utilities. Okay. Yeah. So, so we have solar app for permitting, and and I'd love if more HJs adopted that. Um, there's a lot we can do to improve inspections, but then meanwhile, on the interconnection side, utilities all they all have different application documents, and and that gets confusing if you're trying to work across a couple of utility territories, which everyone does. There are some that will reject your application if you write out the word street instead of put ST, period. So there are a lot of sort of <laughs> random reasons for rejection. There's also issues with things like transformer upgrades. So utility will say, well, you're the last one on this feeder you know, to that's able to install solar. And in order to do that, you have to pay for this $20,000 transformer upgrade. And so that sort of falls under the, the, intercon- the, the interconnection issues. And you have utilities taking, I mean, it should be a fairly straightforward process to, you know, to accept the application, give approval, you know, get an inspector out there if you need it, change the meter if, you know, if that's what you need. But sometimes it takes, it takes six months. Um, they're, they're in Puerto Rico for a little while. It was taking over a year on average. Um, we, can, we can do better than that. It frustrates customers who, you know, who sometimes see solar sitting on their roof, but don't have permission to operate. So they'll sit there for months and it's, or, or just the process is too, it takes too long or is too cumbersome. They have to send in a physical check. They have to go in and sign something physically. You know, it's, it's, there's a way to improve these processes. So that's something I think about a lot and would love, love to see more people work on. Well, something else I think about a lot, and it's in something that uh, we've observed, and now you on the board, I'm certain have conversations around is the Division of effort is probably the best way to say it. I'm aware that in many industries, there are multiple trade associations. But one of the things that I've observed uh, back to AWEA, now rebranding as ACP or American Clean Power, is that the, the, I'll call the different voices and often large voices in the room that propose opportunity to represent our interests, the 
question I have around this is the conflicting messaging and maybe even co- conflicting sort of a, a appearance representation uh, on Capitol Hill when organizations that do have power and money both uh, sort of represent, I'm doing air quotes here, our interests, but our interests in many ways are varied. How do we unify those lobbying efforts in your experience of spending lots of time on Capitol Hill and accepting the fact that we're probably always going to have at this point, at least, uh, at least two organizations like SIA and America Clean Power. What's the unification effort like to get those lobby dollars and lobby efforts and time focused on the right things? It's a tricky balance because you're right. The, hmm. the companies and the entities with the power can hire those who are also powerful and that, you know, they, they have the money to do that. I think I've, I've been really impressed by SIA's efforts to work with ACP. There are times of, of great alignment and times when there's not. And I think they have a great relationship, um, but, are, but are sort of willing to go their separate ways if, um, if not completely aligned. It's important to have multiple voices as well speaking out about these issues. And so for companies like mine, um, Sonova works with over 800 small dealers all across the country. So, you know, obviously we, we, we do not speak for them, but we do always have their best interests in mind because their success is our success. And so having entities like Sonova and Sunrun on the board of, of, th- of places like CF Trade Associations, I think gives a, a, you know, sort of powerful voice to a broad coalition of entities. So I, 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 think, I think that's helpful as well. Towards the end of, I think, 2021, you were selected by an organization that's initiative actually um, called C3E as the business category winner for the U.S. Clean Energy Education and Empowerment Award, which as an organization aims to close the gender gap and increase participation, leadership, and success of women in clean energy fields. First of all, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, secondly, congratulations, Princeton, for having 30% representation of the nine women selected. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Princeton's when it is earning my respect here today. Um, not that they didn't have it. Uh, I'm going to have Steph Spears on the show as well soon. Yeah. One of the things that they noted in their, I'll say, award message toward you is that you have made key contributions to move policy and legislation forward in more than 20 states. So I think the logical question that most people would ask if they are unfamiliar is, like what? <laughs> that's that's a really good question. Um, I mean, it's been over a decade of, of doing this. I remember when I started in the industry, the main thing I worked on, honestly, was making third-party ownership legal. Um, we sort of take it for granted now that, fi- you know, we can finance in, in most places, you know, luckily most recently Florida. No one had conceived of that back in 2009, 10, even 11, 12. And so a lot of my work focused on that. So if you are able to finance your system in a, in a number <laughs> a number of markets, all, you know, most of the largest ones, it's, it's because of a lot of the work I did early on. And then also back then, the, another big fight was with upfront incentives or incentives broadly, somewhere, somewhere performance-based incentives. So making sure that we had the incentives needed to support the growth of the industry. From there, the conversations have obviously, one, one large one is, you know, value of solar conversations and net metering conversations. And some of those, um, m- many of those fights, probably the largest one I participated in until this current California conversation was in Arizona back in 2013. And um, we as an industry decided to get, to show that we were, we were willing to really engage and be really vocal and not willing to just be walked all over by utilities. And so, so we did, we, we were extremely vocal in Arizona that year. I mean, we had, we had a huge 
rally. I, someone handed me a megaphone at one point. And so I spoke to this large group of people assembled outside the Arizona Corporation Commission. And the photo of it ended up on the front page of the Arizona Republic the next day. All totally unexpected, but it was, you know, it, it was sort of our first show of force as an industry that, you know, we were, we had jobs and we were going to show up and fight for those, fight for those jobs and for, for our customers. Hey, you know, it's becoming commonplace to hear that energy storage is the key to deploying renewables at scale. But if you've tried to put storage on a commercial solar project ever, then you realize it's easier said than done until now. Look, I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings as a solar project developer in my 15 years in the industry, but Yada Energy's storage product just scratches that developer itch of fit, function, and ease to install. Yada's PV-coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions integrates seamlessly right behind the solar panel. In fact, it elegantly replaces the need for a ballast as it nests right into the racking on a flat roof install. Even better, Yada's integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be deployed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means that Yada is finally helping business owners and solar installers alike make a serious dent in the commercial sector's massive carbon emissions. Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by maximizing solar plus storage without taking up additional valuable commercial real estate for your customers. To find out how Yada Energy can bring storage to your CNI rooftop project, visit mysuncast.com forward slash Yada. That's Y-O-T-T-A. Yada Energy, an elegant and revolutionary approach to solar plus storage. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast. And you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three Key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Well, as I have alluded to, you've done a great deal of work and often often uh, vocally and often silently as well in the background around uh, exactly what the C3E initiative pointed to, closing the gender gap and uh, being very intentional around that. Uh, we talked about wise and rise, and obviously your work at SIA is in itself an effort as an organization and as an industry to have more female representation at a board level that makes a difference and an impact. Uh, how have you taken that internally at uh, Sonova? Right. So I saw I saw a need for more support for women 
just within Sonova. There's, you know, obviously there's great organizations like Rise um, and others, but I wanted I wanted some more specific sort of company support um, for the for the women that work for us. And so I ended up co-founding a group called the Women's Leadership Network at Sonova about about a year and a half ago, a little under a year and a half ago. And started out with a survey because I, you know, I wanted to know what people, what it is that people needed, what were they looking for, and took the results of that survey and ended up providing, you know, sending out some emails, providing resources. But we also put together a quarterly speaker series um, with incredible speakers. We've we've gotten some really really fantastic people to come speak, like the head of Greentown Labs, Emily Reichert. Um, which is based in Houston. Um, one of our board members, Anne Slaughter Andrew, who's the former ambassador to Costa Rica, and a couple of others. Our, our next event will be with Dress for Success in Houston. So our quarterly speaker series has been well attended and really popular. Um, we also put together a co-mentoring program. We called it co-mentoring because I didn't want there to be a power dynamic between anybody or any pair because we have something to learn from everybody regardless of where we are in our career and where they are in their career. And so we did a we did a co-mentoring program, fairly informal. We sent out questions at the beginning of every month for six months um, and encouraged them to meet for half an hour if, you know, if they could, longer if they could. And, you know, if, if they're busy, let, you know, life happens. But we sort of gave them the the opportunity and the sort of the 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 guidance for for those meetings. And then this year we've brought on a really incredible steering committee of 10 women from the company who are I mean, brilliant, impressive, passionate, engaged people who have just a ton of ideas. And, and I'm more excited, you know, about this maybe than anything else to see what, what they end up doing with the organization. By way, perhaps, of just in, uh, extra data, do you have a particular data point around the percentage of female representation at Seneva? 40%. 40, 40. Four zero. yeah. And we are also- That's, that's um, remarkable. 60, but how many employees at Sonova for folks that don't know? I think we have, we have about 1,000, 900, 1,000, yeah. something wow. like that. That's amazing. We also, we're an- I don't think there were 400 <laughs> women in the solar industry when you, when you joined. I know. And we're also, we're also an incredibly diverse company. I think we're 60 to 70% non-white. Our ESG report's coming out soon, so I'll have, I'll have the latest numbers from that. But according to our last ESG report, these were, these were the numbers. That's fantastic. Uh, thank you for doing that, by the way. I know that you've been, uh, that's one of those things that has been like silent leadership because folks in the industry don't necessarily know how you are bringing it back and bringing it home to an, or, you know, a family, an organization where it really matters. And I think the next point will will bring that home even more. Well, and I, I have to say just really quickly, I I was able to do that not just because I, you know, it, it was just, it was only me. I've had a lot of support from our CEO on this initiative we've been talking about it for a while. And then finally he was like, you know, let's, let's do more. You know, I, I am setting you loose, <laughs> go, go, go forth and do this. So, so it's, it's, it's been really great to work on this, but also with the full support of the CEO, with the executive team um, and with, you know, with other leaders within the company. Well, for those who are unfamiliar and we've sort of spoken to or around it, Sonova is the second largest residential solar company in the United States. I don't know where you guys rank overall. Uh, perhaps you do in terms of overall megawatts or, or billions of dollars moved. Uh, do you have a sense of that? Uh, we have almost 200,000 customers. That's that's where we stand. Jesus, 200? Two, almost, thousand. almost 200,000. You'll see, you'll see lots that's of amazing. press around probably when we, when we reach 200,000 at, at some point. When you hit the 200,000, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for someone to like, probably Solar SolarCity, uh, uh, Sunrun, these companies can talk to, or even Sonova, like, 
tracking like the trillionth kilowatt hour delivery yeah, or something yeah, like know. that. Or, are you guys tracking those metrics? I know. I, I probably, I don't think as an industry we are. Maybe individually. We just, we just need someone to add up all the earnings reports. <laughs> I know. You remember we celebrated all of the, like the millionth right. solar right. roof I in do. California back, I want to say 2019, 2020 tops. I remember when we celebrated the millionth in the country. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was like 2015, yeah. 2016. Yeah. Okay. So John Berger, is the CEO, has a tremendous track record of entrepreneurship. I got to get John on the show Mm -hmm. as well, uh, which I'm going to hold your feet to the fire (laughs) to help me get John back. Sure thing. Back. I've had him for like a 10 minute cameo on our um, sort of one year Maria report episode, but I want to get his, he's got such a phenomenal story. He does. Just a really tremendous track record of entrepreneurship. And he came out of oil and gas. So no surprise, Sonova is now one of the largest energy companies in the birthplace of the oil and gas industry, really the home mm-hmm. in Houston. When you think about the the culture that John has created with Sonova, and I would say even the way that Sonova as a company has challenged the industry to think differently, what do you what do you think Sonova is doing differently than the rest, especially as the second largest solar company in the industry sitting in the birthplace of the oil and gas sector? Yeah, that's that's something we're really proud of. We're we're in the energy capital of the world and showing that it doesn't just have to be certain types of energy that there's, there's lots of options. And I think this is John's third solar company that he's started. Um, and so for, he's been committed to this industry and this sector for a really long time. Um, and I, we're lucky to have him with his entrepreneurial skills, his great ability to raise money and, and his, his leadership and thought leadership, I think, um, think are all great, but I think it's our goal. I, I know it's our goal to be the first wireless power company. Wireless power company. Yeah. Wow. We will get some more into that. <laughs> we, we call ourselves, you know, a so, solar and storage services provider. And that's, that's deliberate. We don't, we're not just here to finance your system and that, that sort of be the end of it. We want to make sure it's maintained and operated. It's upgraded. Things are replaced if, you know, when, you're, when your battery ends up getting sort of used up. You know, if we switch to a 4 or 5G network, if your inverter needs to be upgraded, we want to be there for that. Um, and at some point, I think we'd really like to be able to to provide all of your power. Mm. What does that mean? It could it, it means it could mean a lot of things, both at your home, um, sort of on the nano grid level. We'd, we'd like to be able to provide that power, provide the reliability that comes with you know multiple options at your home: a battery, a couple of batteries, the solar system, and then beyond that. There's also a vision for creating you know microgrids and virtual power plants. We want to be you know, a large power plant. We want to run a large power plant. We already are with, you know, almost 200,000 rooftops to, that we that we manage. But so we we want to be, you know, you hear a lot in Houston about the oil majors. We want to be a solar major and, and, a, and a wireless hmm. power provider. I love this idea of a wireless power provider. Did you say you, you want to be the world's largest or the world's first? I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds... I feel like you're channeling John Berger. I there. am. I am. And you you <laughs> should definitely perfect. ask him so, about this because he's he's very passionate I can't about wait. it. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll note that we could potentially go down a long rabbit trail here <laughs> that will be fun, and I'm I'm willing. I'm game to entertain it, and I know that others are waiting with bated breath here. But Costa and I hung out over the um, time I was in Boston for RE Plus, and he reminded me that his uh, his crystal ball question, which you should be thinking about was that the industry would scale to like giga scale when we hit 5G, like when 5G became a thing. And he basically said, that's the, that's the inflection point. And 
I'll be darned. Like we're, we're seeing just how 5G and technology around it is giving amplification of the possibilities of different business models. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, and to the extent that you're allowed, what sort of business model evolutions do you see in the solar industry that things like 5G and things like being a solar services provider rather than a solar installer or financier, as many people see, Sonova, what business models do you see evolving? And I would, I would ask you or task you with thinking uh, along the lines of like a Comcast and a Verizon who have companies that even piggyback off their services like Leap Wireless and US uh, Wireless Network, right? Like the what can we imagine that will be spawned as even new business types? That's a great question. I, I, love, I love thinking about what's next for this industry because when I started, it was just getting solar on roofs. And now we're talking about, you know, aggregated sales into wholesale markets. So essentially being a distributed power plant. We're talking about the reliability that we can provide customers through the nanogrid at their home or the microgrid in their community. We're talking about virtual power plants in Puerto Rico to help them make up, and, and honestly, Hawaii, to help them make up capacity shortfalls and, and help mitigate the, the spiking costs of oil. So, you know, that's where we are now. I think in the future, we'll see even more autonomy, reliability, and cost savings. And, you know, and this is what I'm passionate about is the, is the carbon reduction side of it as well. As consumers are able to become more engaged in their energy system, they don't have to just be passive you know, consumers of the energy that's sent to them from, from a centralized source where they can be, they can be engaged with um, electrifying their home, charging their EV with their solar, having a battery on their home for, you know, if, if the, if the grid goes down, um, if there's a huge transmission failure. And I mean, and, and that's often the issue when there's huge storms, it's not necessarily that generating plants go down. I think 90% of the time it's transmission and distribution lines. And so that's, that's the weak point in our system. And if we can, mitigate that, significantly mitigate that by better engaging consumers in their energy usage while also making it cheaper for them, more reliable and cleaner. I think, I think that's the future I'd like to see. And I think that's where we're going. Fascinating. So I'll ask the obvious question, given your positions, plural, where are the policy and regulatory bottlenecks that keep us <laughs> from achieving these, pre- these possibilities and making them present realities instead of future possibilities? Yeah, there's definitely job security in, in in this world because there's a I mean none of the none of these things were conceived of ever when you know policies, regulations, laws were written. And so it's sort of the same thing of you know back when we had to make third-party ownership legal. No one had thought that someone would finance a home solar system and you know and and we'd have to take that into account. We're now at this other inflection point where we need to show policymakers and leaders the art of the possible. You know what what is possible and how do all of these different softwares and systems and technologies, how could they interact to make all of our lives better? And it's, and it's tough because it's change is tough and, you know, incumbents who, who benefit from the current system don't, don't necessarily want to see that change. And so some of the, some of the inflection points or, or some of sort of the bottlenecks are, for example, with microgrids, you can't build microgrids unless they're behind a meter. So you can put it on like a military base at a, on a university campus, on a, you know, at a hospital, but you can't build a community microgrid unless the utility is managing it. So unless they get to sort of own and operate and manage it, but independent builders or entrepreneurs or, you know, 
um, companies can't can't go in and, and help a community become more resilient because of because of rules that just prohibit that sort of outdated outdated rules. Where do those rules sit, by the way? Like where, what would we be trying? Well, Apple Card, are we upsetting when we try to change that rule? <laughs> uh, we'd have to, we'll have to fix those at public utility commissions, I think for the most part, but- So they're PUC, PUC rules, rules at a state level, yeah. FERC level? Um, at a state level. Um, also, I think at a FERC level. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a national issue. There's no state that, that, doesn't, that doesn't have this, but there are roles legislatures can play in directing PUCs to do certain things. Yeah. And then another bottleneck is is getting public utility commissioners. I mean, it's they're they're under a lot of pressure to keep rates low and keep and keep the system reliable. But you know, to get them to look up and and see the you know see the forest for the trees and to consider the system more broadly and you know the most optimal way to create what that energy system could look like, and and that can be tough because it it takes into account technologies they might not be familiar with or or rate structures that you know have are have been unheard of to date. So a bottleneck is is definitely educating regulators and and getting them to focus on the future, you know, rather than just immediate issues. You know, for example, California now wants to invest $30 billion in transmission by 2050. You know, and so that's that's something that the regulators, you know, have to consider and they have to focus on immediately. But what if, you know, what if there's a way to not have to make those investments um, and a way to do it you know, in, in a way that's cleaner and cheaper and more fair for everybody. So the, yeah, the bottleneck is, is time, you know, as you, as you started off the podcast saying that is, that is something we can't get back. (laughs) In the interest of time, I won't go into all the complicated ways that current PUC um, planning and filings take into account utility plans that are written on a five or 10 year timescale for all the reasons that we know around spending reserves and needing Sort of the way that the current yeah. energy infrastructure was built, the utility planning infrastructure, unsurprisingly, is designed for planning around that. And they're as often looking back as they are looking forward. And it's a plan by the utility, right? Like how yeah. how is there innovation and, you know, competition oh, in yeah. that? And, and is that really? Oh, good point. Because they're not incentivized oh. to innovate. No. Yeah, not in any way. We could spend an entire episode on that. Many, many in the industry have. So again, in the essence of time, I'd actually, uh, I I'd love to, to see you interviewed. Um, have you talked with David Pomerantz from? No. Oh my gosh, I would, I would love that. He can talk all we'll about. Uh, please, please. He would talk all about utility <laughs> malfeasance. So the Energy Policy Institute. I'm sure you're familiar with them. They, um, they mm-hmm. do a lot of research on, you know, like the the first energy thing in Ohio and the an FPL in the third part, the shadow elections. So you know, they, they uncover and promote all of the ways in which utilities take advantage of their position, their captive ratepayers, and their, you know, tons of money to, to, to undermine what's in the best interests of their ratepayers. Anyway, I would, I would love to hear a discussion with him about that. Well, I will, uh, will follow up with you for the intro request for that. I know that one of the increasingly not so silent, but certainly over the last 10 years, like silent plans of the industry from Sonova and Vivint to SolarCity and Sunrun of the ability to aggregate distributed energy resources, FERC 2222, all the things that we now see coming to fruition in the marketplace that make it possible for us to even think about the idea of transactive energy uh, and virtual power plants at a nationwide scale rather than just uh, little pilot programs in the Northeast and, and other areas. They are the fruit of long and uh, arduous work on your part and many in roles similar to yours. What is still needed 
for virtual power plants in particular, which I recently spoke um, with Jigger and LPO, who are going to be putting a lot of effort and time into that. But like, what's what's needed, either from a physical infrastructure or regulatory perspective, for us to actually engage in things like VPP and transactive energy at a, at a nationwide scale, or even at a Texas level scale, which is already um, a, a, a deregulated market? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, first is the permission. And so that's where 2222 comes in. And that's why it was so, it was so groundbreaking. And then every, you know, ISO and RTO has their own way of approaching how to do this, um, which, which makes, that makes it challenging for providers since, since everyone is different. We've bid into ISO New England's forward capacity market um, twice now and, and won those bids. So we have, I think, I think 20 megawatts each time that we, that we've been into that. And we're creating a virtual power plant in Puerto Rico but it's not as widespread as it should be. I mean, there's so much that distributed solar can do to help with capacity shortfalls with rolling blackouts, for example, in California. I, um, I joke, you know, they have their flex alert program where Kaiso will, will often tweet, you know, everybody, please don't use electricity from six to nine tonight. You know, we're, we're expecting shortfalls. Um, and I call it their janky demand response program. Because there, it's just, you know, they're just tweeting and asking people, help, can you help us out? You know, what if you paid people? to not do that? Um, what if you implemented a tariff that gave them a, some sort of benefit for not using electricity then, or that paid people who dispatch their batteries for doing that? You do that with commercial entities. Why not residential? And so one of the bottlenecks is data, is data availability and, you know, just paying people for, for, their, for their participation in, in these systems. You know, it's interesting because that is a point that, you know, it, it specifically speaks to the need not just in California, but even in uh, Sonova's home state of Texas, uh, for the ability to have reliable pr- uh, forecasting and control over these resources to make them with the advent of or addition and attachment of so- storage to make them dispatchable. One of the comments that I'll, I'll link to is John, who, who tweeted, and I think you retweeted it perhaps, uh, he quoted, uh, and it was picked up by one of the major outlets, I can't recall. It's not about renewables versus fossil fuels. It's about a need for decentralized. Effectively, he was talking about the need for decentralized, reliable power systems that prevent future energy crises like what happened uh, in in Texas. So that's one element of it. The other element of it is how, to your point, do consumers get compensated? The thing that is on everybody's mind is this net energy metering, we'll call it battle, war, (laughs) civil though it may be, that's happening in states like California and Florida. For those you know, you are definitely on the front lines of this. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the key issues as you see it around this idea that there's a net energy metering battle and some of the false false commentary or false dichotomies, the false equivalents that might be surfacing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important to start with in these fights when you think about what is what is a fair outcome. The outcome being pushed by the other side is the complete annihilation of the solar industry. So it's it's tough to find common ground and find a you know a compromise that makes both sides happy when when one's posi- you know line in the sand is just eliminating any sort of competition within their territory. Um, so that, that you know that's that's a fundamental issue is as part of all of these conversations and that we you know that we face um, every time we go into into one of these. The other thing, and you know, that it's called net metering battles, um, and net metering is a part of all of these conversations. But it's 
it's only a part because also what's brought into it is um, taxes or fixed fees on solar customers. So the ones proposed in California right now would be $90 a month. It would be, you know, $20,000 over the life of a solar system, which is more than, you know, if you take into account the ITC, more than the solar system costs. So they're paying a tax and a fee that's more than double or, you know, that more than doubles their, their overall investment. And so, you know, that's not net metering. That's just trying to tax customers for daring to buy less power from, from a utility. You also have conversations about grandfathering. Customers made these investments, you know, with a payback period in mind, thinking that they would, you know, have access to a certain rate. And there are proposals to eliminate grandfathering or to, to lower it to three years or 10 years. So, you know, once again, not net metering specific, but a way to undermine customers' investments, their ability to go solar, their likelihood of going solar. Um, And then you have, on top of all that, well, then there's conversations about netting. How often do you sort of net out the system? You know, if, if you have access to net metering, is it yearly or monthly or instantaneous? And there are ways, once again, to undermine customer investments with, with the netting period. And then you get into the net metering um, credit. And, you know, there, there's, just, there's been so many studies <laughs> ad nauseum done showing that the value of solar you know, we believe, and and a lot of studies have shown, is often higher than retail rate. Obviously, there's no one va- one exact value for any energy. It depends on when it was produced, where, how much, you know, how firm it is, how much you can count on it. Um, but retail rate is, is a general, you know, fair number for solar. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. So the issue, sh- the discussion should then be over tariffs. What sort of tariffs should solar customers be on? not about how can we charge them a discriminatory fee that is charged to nobody else, you know, for, for anything that if they, you know, do energy efficiency or, or say buy an EV, you know, for every couple of EVs, you need a transformer upgrade. Are those EV customers paying for those? Tra- no, they're not. That, that's being rate-based and socialized amongst everybody. So the, the conversation needs to be broader than just the complete annihilation of an entire industry and, and a consumer option that reduces that you know gives them reliability, reduces what they purchase from the utility, and uh, and helps helps our carbon emissions. Where do you see? Thank you. That was a really comprehensive answer. <laughs> I want to ask the following question, and it is around like basically. I want to. I think the answer is Florida, but uh, a lot of effort and energy goes into using California as the example. But where else do we need to really keep our attention focused? Where do you have your uh, time, attention, and perhaps relationship capital focused on the on turning the tides toward our industry for key things like net energy metering in other states? I mean, notably, uh, my home state of North Carolina, my uh, birth state of South Carolina, neither have particularly favorable um, what I would consider to be net energy metering rules. Uh, where where else do you see this battle in quotations raging? Yeah, Florida is is obviously top of mind these days, and a lot of it is about educating the decision makers. As you pointed out earlier, there are some very powerful interests that that tend to have more resources and better and more connections. You know, and then there's sort of the scrappier solar industry. And so it's, you know, who has a louder voice um, and can and can really influence, all, you know, these discussions. And I, remind, it, what I think about is in Florida, you know, as this battle has started raging, the solar industry has said, OK, we need to come together and we need to be, be better about, you know, trying to 
support the decision makers that, you know, that we want to work with and that are, that are, you know, creating policy. And so we as an industry, I think we're able to raise something like $150,000 for political contributions. I mean, an unheard of sum. It's a huge sum of money. It's, I mean, mind-blowing how, how much that is. And I remember being so proud that, you know, small, small installers came in and, you know, would, would contribute a, you know, a thousand or two thousand. Like we all, we all pulled together and I'm so proud that we did that. And then I heard that, um, last year alone, FPL contributed $12 million to, um, to legislators and their nonprofits and their leadership committees how do you know how do you go up against something like that if if i was if it was unheard of to raise 150,000 and i was so proud of it and but it just pales in comparison to 12 million there's there's no way to match that and so so it's a matter of in all of these conversations and and florida won't be the last it won't be the last time we talk about the value of solar the contributions that solar and batteries can make to our overall energy system i mean that that i think that conversation will happen in perpetuity so it's it's a matter of you know, if you can't outspend them, you just have to outorganize them, um, yeah. and that's and that's Ooh. sort of where the conversation. Well, back to our conversation happening. earlier, right? In that there is a tension of, always between uh, national footprint SIA and state footprint CALSA. As a great example, right? We talked about SIA and ACP, but even SIA and CALSA often seem to be at odds or or. Uh, uh, asking, making different asks of the industry. Um, how do we, I don't know if you have an answer for this, but I'll, you know, just float it out there. Like, is that, is that a part of the advocacy work that you also engage in at a private company level? (laughs) Yeah. Moderating conversations between state trade associations (laughs) and national one. I mean, and and you can imagine it would be tricky because state trade associations, they know their one market and their one state and represent really, really local companies directly within that state. Um, and then you have an entity with, you know, with a ton of knowledge and staff and resources that also wants to be in and should be participating in these conversations. Um, and there are, you know, a million examples of times when they, the collaboration has gone perfectly and, 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 you know, they're grateful to have each other, you know, and then there are times where they, they feel that they represent slightly different interests because one does represent larger companies and one, you know, one represents very, you know, smaller companies that are there on the ground. So, you know, there will always be a tension over who should, who should be the spokesperson and, and who should, who should be the main negotiator. Um, but I, I think for the most part, it works well. Well, it dovetails actually with something that I think about that this really focuses on this national footprint versus local or, or regional footprint. And by and large, you've got the financiers uh, and the, uh, we'll call the sort of the aggregation organizations, the companies that will be the super majors in the energy sector, like you and Sunrun, uh, like Sunova and Sunrun. Uh, but they, by their definition, require a network of local partners. How does Sonova think about the contractor base? They are so critical to to this industry and to our success. Um, we consider them partners. We at Sonova, we don't ourselves have any um, any ins- installation capacity, so we don't we don't we will not build you a system. We work only entirely with our with our local dealers who do that. Um, but we so in many ways you have two customers. Exactly. Exactly. But, and both are both are critically important. But we we have a ton of respect for our dealers for the work that they do, their work ethic, 
John likes to say, and this is something you could ask him about, but he's, he likes to work with people who don't want to work for anybody. He likes entrepreneurs. He himself is one and loves working with the leaders of these, um, of these small businesses who they don't work for anybody. They, they run their own companies and they are driven and brilliant and hardworking and they're the best types of partners to have. What do you think is the future of the contractor in the solar industry? I mean, it's tough to get too large as a contractor. I think, I think we saw that with Solar City. I mean, they had, they were an entirely vertically integrated company. Um, mm-hmm. and it's and it's hard to scale labor and hard to manage that in in a ton of different markets. So, you know, so contractors might grow fairly large, but I think I, th- I think that's what we'll see is we'll we'll still have large contractors and there will still be opportunities for smaller ones in the industry too, because there's always going to yeah. be a space that the larger contractors don't don't fill or there's, you know, there's enough demand out there. We, we, our, our solar penetration is so limited that the really the yeah. the biggest um, our biggest competition is just a lazy homeowner. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. I've never heard anybody say that. Yeah. Our biggest competition is lazy homeowner. Well, uh, people like Greg Butterfield agree with you. And he is uh, one of the guys that, you know, took uh, Vivint Public, now Partisan Run, um, has had, he and many others like John have had a great impact on how our industry is viewed at Wall Street it seems to me that there is a bifurcation in our industry around kind of what p- private equity money or publicly traded company money can accomplish and help in lifting our industry uh, into sort of that super major category. Do you see a future where we see more Sunruns and Sonovas and Lumios? Um, or is this just a, a necessary door we need to walk through where, uh, and, and then we evolve into something else? How do you view that? I think, I think we will see more. And I, you know, we have seen mm. sort of the growth of the loan providers, you know, in the past couple mm-hmm. of years, and that yeah. that wasn't necessarily expected back in 2015 or so. Um, so I, I think we'll we'll see we'll see more companies that that compete in this space and that have offerings, especially when you get into solar as a service. There will be different service options and service offerings, um, and different different costs and different levels of you know commitment to. Um, to maintenance, for example, but I don't think we'll see, you know, an overwhelming number. There is, there is a barrier to entry and it's not, it's not necessarily easy. You, you have to raise money, you know, have an eye toward going public. I've gone public with two solar companies now. And so have experienced the before and the after of going public, um, both have their own challenges. And so, you know, so there will be companies who can meet those challenges, but not, you know, not hundreds. It'll be more like tens. You know, with companies like Dividend being acquired by Fifth Third and companies like Sunlight going public, there is often a question in my mind of how your customer, the installer, views companies like Sonova versus how Sonova views Sonova. And I'd like to ask you that because I think that you represent and, and understand kind of both angles or, or perspectives on it. The installers I speak with many times see Sonova as a finance partner, as another another option alongside, you know, dividend or whomever they might choose. How do you, as a company, differentiate yourselves in their mind and in the consumer's mind with, with regard to that, uh, that dichotomy of being a finance partner for the installer, but the IPP, the actual asset owner for the homeowner? Yeah, I would say in two critical ways. One is we, we are cognizant of being very responsive to the feedback from our dealers about you know, the, the software that they have to use to, to bid projects and show custom, you know, to show customers the markup of what it looks like to, to have solar on their homes. 
Um, we also send them leads and, you know, we don't, once again, we don't compete with them. We don't use any of those leads ourselves, but we'll, we'll provide them. So we, we do everything we can to, like you said, think of them as a customer. Um, they're a customer we care about very much and we do everything we can to make their lives easier. Um, on top of that, I would say one of our biggest commitments as a company is to O&M. It's not the sexiest <laughs> part of the business, but I think we are the only company that offers loans that also offers a full 25-year O&M contract. So we will we will monitor and maintain your system for the full life of the loan. And that's as a part of the loan, not an additional not thing an you additional have to go thing. and get. Yeah. I see. And that there's a huge... And, and we do that for every all of our systems, 100% of them. Yeah, and, that in, makes sense. and in fact, we offer something called Sonova Protect Service where you can buy our serv- our O&M service even if we didn't install your system, one of our dealers didn't install your system. So say no someone way. did, they don't exist anymore. You don't know who's going to fix it. The, you know, your warranty claim isn't going through. You don't know who'd install the new battery anyway. And that- Is this, sorry, is this something that's offered to, to folks that, I mean, someone who got uh, a Sunrun install could- could hire that service. Is that what you're saying? That might be trickier if they have a Sunrun contract, but if- the, But it like just a local installer, right. like someone who's maybe not in a third-party owner deal, they bought it. Sounds like mostly a cash deal. It sounds like something similar to what, you know, the guys at Stable Solar and others are starting to offer now as a third-party offering. Right. Okay. Right. Um, wow. And that, our our focus on O&M and, and we want to get mm. down to, you know, within a week, we fix your system if they're, or 48 hours if there's a problem, whereas really the industry standard right now is like three months or something. Um, mm, and in, in a yeah. number of our markets, we are down to that sort of timeline. And that is a benefit for the dealers as well, because it makes people happier with their system and, and referrals are the best way to sell more systems. hundred percent. And so if people yeah. feel that their, their issues are heard and addressed quickly, then they will, they will have a positive overall experience and then refer others to, you know, to have a similar experience. So the, the O&M side serves a number of purposes. It's, it's better business. First of all, yeah. it's better for the customers and it's really good for the dealers. Megan, uh, turning it back to Capitol Hill, you know, we're often painted as a, an us versus them. And we want to say that we're all in one big under energy umbrella. You even participate on panels around ESG and what each industry can learn from one another. Yet, the biggest claim that oil and gas makes is that we are over incentivized. You, by the nature of your job, have to be probably the person with among the most knowledgeable sort of understanding of how to combat that logic. Can you empower the rest of us with how we might engage in that conversation in a dinner table conversation, or maybe even over a little Twitter battle? And then we can get into a little bit of, um, of some of the embedded costs that are maybe affecting our industry and how we can deal with that as well. Yeah, I would love to support you in your Twitter battle talking about awesome. <laughs> renewable subsidies. you yeah. in, or anybody, anybody listening. I, I will, I will have yeah, your back. Tag what? What's your Twitter handle? Just my name at Megan Nutting. Yeah, I, I okay. try to make it to it two T's. Try, yeah, try to make it easy. Megan Nutting two T's. All right. <laughs> but, yeah, one of one of the claims we often hear from you know from solar detractors, you know, wherever, wherever they may come from is that renewables are overly subsidized and get too much government support. And, and, you know, they don't, and, and therefore we are, we are just, you know, taking advantage of taxpayers. Basically the issue with that is, is obviously not true. Coal, oil, and natural gas. First of all, they're over a century old. (laughs) They are an industry that is over a century old and should not at this point need subsidies anymore. The solar industry is, you know, in its current form, maybe a decade old. 
And so we are, we are new to this. And there's obviously a lot of new technologies that we're employing. An IMF study showed that in 2020, coal, oil, and natural gas received about $6 trillion in subsidies, which would be $11 million a minute. That's worldwide. And obviously is a huge number. We also have here in the U.S. $11 billion going to clean up abandoned coal mines. So that's $11 billion that coal companies didn't have to pay. It shows up on their ledger as profits. And all of us taxpayers and people who live close to those abandoned coal mines that are making them sick, we all lose out. There's also the cost to people's health. And that's obviously externalized by all of these companies and is an external subsidy that we provide to them. The subsidies are staggering for that industry. Um, meanwhile, for solar, our, our primary subsidy is the 30% or 26% investment tax credit, which really is, you know, we do, we do get because of government intervention, but also because of government intervention, we have tariffs. We have a ton of tariffs placed on the panels that we buy um, and, and some other goods that we use in our systems. And Wood, uh, Wood McKenzie estimated that solar prices would drop by 30% in the U.S. if all solar tariffs were removed. So the tariffs that the government implements basically negate that, basically essentially negate the subsidy that the government provides. Meanwhile, oil and gas and coal get get huge subsidies worldwide and, and in yeah. the U.S. This is unbelievable. I'm just thinking about as you're talking here, we hear all the time that when solar and wind reach their useful end of life, they're going to be a huge existential environmental crisis and threat. I would like to respond with, awesome, maybe now we can set aside 11 taxpayers' dollars for the next 20 years. And just that, like that fund alone would cover any, like it would be negligible, the amount required to cover any decommissioning of any solar project or any wind project or any well, let's just call it renewables. Even I would suggest that it would go towards decommissioning of nuclear plants if we need to. And $11 billion growing over the next 30 years would certainly take care of that, wouldn't you say? I, I think it would, it would more than take care of it. And um, hopefully by then we'll figure out how to recycle glass and aluminum, which are the primary things that make up solar panels. Right. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. I, or, or maybe we already know how to recycle those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe Fraunhofer just created solar panels made from recycled silicon and glass and aluminum. Brilliant. Um, $11 million a minute in subsidies is, in fact, remarkable. I'd love it if you could shoot me the link to that IMF study from 2020, because I'd like to have other folks empowered with that with that knowledge. You said something to me that I think is fantastic, and we'll we'll wrap on the, on the sort of the policy side of this conversation with this. And it's around a topic that is near and dear and a sore subject for all of us. And that's around tariffs and it, not the consumer utility related kind. Uh, this <laughs> directly impacts the logistics and cost of our products. Talk a bit about the difference in costs if we had no tariff and how we should be thinking about this as an industry. Right. So we, we as, a, as an industry or the, or the solar panel industry has a number of tariffs that we obviously are then we we pay and are subject to, but the first ones were implemented. The um, the anti dumping countervailing and that we have and we have to pass along to consumers. Exactly. By the way, so we pass along yeah. to consumers. Um, so the anti dumping countervailing duty tariffs on China were imposed under Obama back in 2012. Under Trump, we had the Section 201 tariffs imposed, and those are for those are for imports essentially all over the world. And yeah. under and hit everything down to inverters. Everything, and, yeah. yeah. And under Biden, those tariffs were just um, extended for the first time in history. 
for more than two years. Um, only one other time in history has have the 201 tariffs been extended. That was just for two years. But of all the things to place tariffs on, um, the administration has chosen solar panels, the things, the inputs we need to meet our clean energy deployment goals. And now we're faced with an additional circumvention petition that would extend the ADCVD tariffs to an additional four countries where we get a lot of our panels. This is, you know, ostensibly the point of tariffs is to support a domestic solar manufacturing industry, but that we don't have that. We don't have, we don't have a strong industry. So we've had $2 billion in Section 201 tariffs collected. And I, and I once asked, I was, I was speaking, I think, to, to USTR um, to the U.S. Trade Rep. And I said, well, where does that money go? And he said, oh, just into the general fund. That just goes to, you know, pay for whatever, whatever Congress, you know, is it, whatever's in their budget. And I said, well, if you're collecting this from solar panels to help the domestic solar industry, why don't you put it towards supporting a domestic solar manufacturing industry? Right. It, it's, it, it's It's mind-blowing. Clearly, the tariffs, which we've had, you know, in some form for over a decade, have not done what was asked of them, which was create a robust domestic manufacturing industry. Um, I think we have a chance at that with a uh, provision in that was in the you know the the bill formerly known as Build Back Better, and and there's a there's a manufacturing refundable tax credit in that bill, and I I hope that's passed as part of the broader climate package because what we need is an investment into this, not a tax yeah. on customers because that hasn't worked. Yeah, I think it's a twenty five D is the is the language right? Uh, the the refund, the cash refund. Oh yeah, yeah. Is is that right? Yeah, that's twenty five. Forty eight C is commercial. Twenty five D is residential. Gotcha. Fantastic. Well, Megan, you are a treasure trove of information <laughs> around the many areas of policy, an, an area in particular, regulatory areas uh, that folks just often, you know, so, like myself don't know enough about. And and that's why it's really super helpful to have someone like you come and talk from your depth of experience where you are on the front lines fighting on our behalf and advocating in many cases for things that all of us want. Uh, I say in many cases, because you still do work for a private corporation and everybody has uh, on, on some level to work, uh, to work towards the niche that they, uh, that they're working for as well. So uh, I want to say on behalf of the industry, and I don't know that I represent the entire industry, but I certainly appreciate the work that you and folks like you and Anne have done to make sure that the policy leans more towards and bend towards the arc of success for our industry uh, than it did before. Megan, you know, you've been walking the inner halls of not just Capitol Hill, but some of the uh, most amazing companies in our industry at a time when we saw explosive growth, you've been a champion for uh, women in leadership. And in this Women's History Month, I'd love to hear your perspective on when you think about our industry and the words success story, who comes to mind for you? I think what comes to mind immediately is just, is a lot of the women that I really admire within our industry. Um, we talked a lot about Christy Graff from Rise earlier and her leadership I also, I'm really excited um, at, at some recent news that Erica Simmons has moved from Grid Alternatives, um, which is once again a fantastic organization run by another fantastic woman. And she's moving over to SIA to head up, I think, their diversity initiatives. Um, they couldn't have made a better hire. And I, she's, she's someone that I admire a ton and that I'm, I'm so proud of the success that she's seen. 
Another woman that I really admire is Nicole Sitaraman. She actually um, came from Sunrun and went to work for sort of an impact investor and is now running um, a critical group at FERC on, um, on consumer engagement. And so she, she's another person I admire, that I, that I just admire a lot. And then I've also loved, I love seeing brilliant, engaged people in the industry, you know, move into positions of government like Nicole did. Um, and so to that end, Kelly Speaks Bachman, who moved over to, um, you know, from the Energy Storage Association over to, over to government. Um, I love seeing her in a position like that where, you, you know, we need good people advocating for us from within. Um, and I know that she's doing a fantastic job as well. So there's, there's just so many people I admire in the industry and so many success stories that I'm, you know, I'm, I couldn't have said all of this probably 10 years ago. And, and now it's just, it's, it's fantastic to be able to, to admire these women and and talk about them. Yeah. Kelly is one that I've been, I've long wanted to get on the show. And we were like at the point where I thought I would get her on the show. And then she accepted this role as principal deputy assistant secretary at the DOE. And uh, now like Jigger just almost doesn't have time to consider it. So Kelly, if you're listening or if your team is listening, we want to get you on the show as well. Uh, I also would note that both Kristen Graff and Erica Simmons have been on Suncast. Um, So folks, if you want to learn more about them, you can search their names and we'll try to link to them as well in the show notes. You as well as mentoring have been mentored by a number of fantastic folks in your career. I'd love to know if there are any key lessons or takeaways that maybe even through the Women's Leadership Program at Sonova, you often share as takeaways from your career that could be instructive for others? I think one of the biggest ones is none of us can make it in our careers without some help at some point. No, no one mm-hmm. can do this in a vacuum. And so don't be afraid to ask for help. Sometimes it can feel uncomfortable or embarrassing, um, but you should, you should never be afraid to ask for assistance or input or feedback or help. And along those same lines, give help when you can, because people are, are going to ask you people often reach out to me through LinkedIn, for example, and ask if they can, you know, they say they might want to be getting into renewables or have a career change. I, I usually, I always can find 15 minutes to talk to people, you know, and, and help them in any way I can. Perhaps I know of an opening that hasn't been published somewhere or a person that they should speak with, or just have some thoughts with them on, or have some thoughts for them on, you know, career options that they might not have, have thought about. So, provide help whenever you have the ability to do so and, and ask for it whenever, whenever you need it. Beautifully stated. I believe that leaders are readers. I don't presume that you necessarily are an avid reader, but I would imagine given that you've made it through grad school, you've read a few books that have, have made an impact on you. I'd love to know if there are one or two that uh, by way of the impact they've made on you, you often refer others to read them or you recommend them or gift them to folks. Let's see. I, I am. I reading is an upset, calling it an obsession would probably be <laughs> accurate. Um, I'd much rather read than watch TV or, or do almost anything else. Are you a paper reader or, or an audible book re- listener like I and many listeners um, here? I read a Kindle that way. Yeah. Kindle, that okay. way when I travel. I tried Kindle. I just can't. <laughs> but I, yeah. It's not perfect, but you could take, yeah. so when you, when you travel, you can take the five books you're exactly. reading right now. Exactly. Okay. So let's do this two ways. I'd like to know, well, I used to ask what's on your nightstand. So like, what's one book that you're reading right now that is recommendable so far that you've gotten through it? I really enjoyed recently finished Matrix by Lauren Groff. It was not about a Matrix, like the movie, which I assumed. <laughs> it was about a, so Matrix is sort of the Latin name for the female version of 
master or, you know, some, something like that. So yeah. So it's about a woman in the 1200s who ends up, you know, against all odds, especially for women at the time being, being a leader in her community. Um, and it was, it was very impressively written. So I, I enjoyed that a lot. Wow. Appropriate for Women's History Month. That's a very, that's a nice lead. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, Landed that one. And then it was just my birthday a couple of weeks ago. And a friend gave me a book that I've been wanting to read. And, um, and I was, and so I have it in physical copy and I have it on my stand right here. Um, But it's Amanda Gorman's book, Call Us What We Carry, her book of poetry. And so, um, so I've started that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not done it yet, but I'm, that's fantastic. I'd like to know, other than morning walks or evening walks with your husband while you listen to Suncast, <laughs> are there any other are there any other routines or consistent practices that have given you uh, a level of sort of leverage or impact and yield in your life? Yeah, well, doing you know doing something that I enjoy that's active. I love skiing, so I, I try to do that a lot, or um, or hiking, being outside generally. Um, I like that. I also. <laughs> And maybe this one's boring, but I'm just, I'm really organized. And so staying organized and being organized helps me feel like I have more control over my life because things, you know, obviously all of our lives get crazy. And so, so that's, that's just sort of a daily practice. So we gave out your Twitter account at Megan Nutting. We'll certainly link to that, but where do you like to be found? How can people best engage with you? Um, that's a great spot. LinkedIn is great as well. I'd yeah, say. Are you a responder to LinkedIn DMs? Cause some people aren't, I know you are to me, but you know, we got history. I know. Yeah. Not every LinkedIn DM that <laughs> sometimes <laughs> there can be a lot. Um, and the sales, the salesy mm. ones, I just, I don't have time. I don't have time for usually, but, um, um, but I, but I do my best. I try to check LinkedIn a couple of times a week. So I, yeah, I, I try. So, so at tweet you, or if you, if they're so lucky and you'll, do you have your Twitter open that folks can DM you, mm-hmm. even if they're not following yeah, them? I do. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Fantastic. Okay. That's always good. It's a, that's sort of a crapshoot, uh, whether or not folks have that little setting. That on, is a crapshoot. And, but, and one thing I admire is when people t- DM me and ask me to like, or retweet something they posted, I'll often do that because it takes a lot of initiative for, you know, what they clearly care about something. And that's why they've tweeted it and to ask and to, you know, solicit support from people. I think, I think that's impressive. I like initiative. I like when people show initiative. So that impresses me. That's really cool. I wouldn't have thought to ask that. And that's a great little tidbit to share there. (laughs) Well, let's end today, Megan Nutting, as we always do with the bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking or not in the way that you are? What's in your crystal ball? I think we underestimate the power of the consumer. They vote with their money and they're incredibly vocal. Um, if you want to spend a lovely afternoon, I encourage you to listen to public comment at any you know, legislative hearing or public utility commission. So don't underestimate the power of the consumer and um, in, in getting what they want, which overwhelmingly, if the polls are to be believed, seems to be um, clean energy, more reliability and, and more control over their energy. Megan Nutting is Sonova's Executive Vice President of Government and Policy Affairs. This has been a truly riveting and enjoyable 90 minutes of my life, and I'm grateful for you and the work that you do. Thanks for joining us on Suncast. Thank you. And thank you for the work you do, Nico. It's, we're, we're as, an, as an industry, we're lucky to have you. Thank you. Appreciate that. My, oh my, what a fantastic journey. Uh, I'm having fun. I don't know if you are, but I really am getting 
a lot of joy out of digging into the backstory from some of the the fundamental change makers in our industry of whom I consider Megan uh, at the top of the list. She is such a dynamic character. And now you, fellow solar warrior, understand why and you understand a little bit more about not only the intellect, but the insight that goes into building a career around policy and uh, you know, the three-dimensional chess at, at times that companies like Sonova and Sunrun are navigating through brilliant minds like Ann Hoskins and our Megan Nutting, who you've had a chance to get to know today. So thank you for that, Megan. Thank you for joining us here on Suncast. If you are eager to keep learning, well, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find resources along with the social media links book recommendations, and more over on the blog. Click on the Episodes tab at mysuncast.com. If you're listening to this sometime later, you can scroll all the way down to the bottom of the homepage at mysuncast.com and click on Search. Because we've been decently rewarded by the Google gremlins and spiders, you can also just click in Google Mega Nutting Suncast, and that should take you right to the show notes page. I'd be ever grateful to hear your feedback on how we can improve this process for you. If you love what you are hearing, we do this twice a week. On Tuesdays, it's tactical and practical advice. We call it Tactical Tuesdays. And on Thursdays, long, deep, insightful interviews with industry executives in the clean energy transition, just like Megan, every Thursday uh, without fail. And I encourage you to come back and check out more. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can do that right within your podcast player of choice. I know that Spotify has recently also added the feature that you can rate the podcast. And that means such a difference for us in terms of discoverability. If you have been listening for a long time and have not deposited into that social equity jar called rating the podcast, you can do so at ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and share with others exactly what suncast means to you. I would be so, so grateful. And I really, really, truly thank you in advance for doing that. Speaking of thanks, I'd like to thanks once again, our sponsors for helping make this show continually free to you. You can learn more about them as well as how you can partner with us to reach thousands of clean energy champions and solar warriors just like yourself twice a week at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>